Okay, uh, Joel, go ahead. I'm on? You're on. All right. Good morning, y'all. <laughs> Let me open in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the time we can spend together this morning remembering the Lord Jesus, and we thank you for this time we can look into your word now. I pray that you'd uh, open the scriptures to us, uh, encourage and strengthen us and challenge us and help us to love you and to serve you better. In Christ's name, amen. To Colossians, book of Colossians, uh, chapter 4. The last time I spoke, we looked at Colossians 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1, that dealt with the making of a godly home. We looked at the biblical instructions to husbands, to wives, and to children. And we also looked at the biblical instructions for the workplace, as many businesses in biblical times were run out of the home. We looked at God's instructions for servants and masters, which would include today's employees and employers. The reason for these instructions was so that Christ and his gospel would be glorified. Our lives should be such that non-believers will be attracted to the beauty of a Christian home and the message of the gospel, and perhaps come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning we'll be looking at Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. If you remember from last time, Colossians 4.1 actually belongs to the subject discussed in chapter 3, the making of a godly home. This morning we'll be considering the subject of effective prayer regarding the proclamation of the gospel. So let's read Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. Continue earnestly in prayer being vigilant in it, in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. If you're interested in an outline for this section, let me quickly give that to you so you can see where we're going, if that's what you like to do. (laughs) In verse 2, we have the characteristics of effective prayer. Continuance, earnestness, vigilance, and thankfulness. In verses 3 and 4, we have the subject of effective prayer, provision of open doors, and clarity in proclaiming the gospel. And then finally, in verses 5 and 6, we have the lifestyle of an effective witness, walking in wisdom, redeeming the time, speech seasoned with grace, and speech seasoned with salt. So let's look at the characteristics of effective prayer for the gospel. 
Paul begins with the words, continue earnestly in prayer. As you can see, the very first word in Paul's instructions is continue. The first characteristic of effective prayer is continuance. Continuance is one of the most important characteristics of effective prayer. And sadly, it's one of the most neglected. We often start out well in our prayers for a certain need or desire. But then as time goes on, maybe we don't see the results we're looking for as soon as we hoped, and we just sort of give up. We have good intentions, but somewhere along the line, we lose interest and don't follow through. Galatians 6, 9 says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Certainly prayer would be included under the heading of doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. How often do we lose heart and give up before we see an answer to our prayers? The Lord Jesus spoke of this in Luke 18, verses 1 through 8, which reads, Then he spoke a parable of them, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her lest by her continually coming she wear me out. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? I used to struggle with this passage because it seemed to imply that the only reason God would answer our prayers is because he would grow weary of us pestering him. Now, that's not the point of this passage at all. The Lord here is contrasting the attitude of the unjust judge with the deep love God has for his people. If an ungodly judge would give justice to a widow for her persistence, how much more would an all-gracious and lovingly and loving Heavenly Father respond to the prayers of those he loves? The Lord delights to provide for the righteous desires of his people, but he will, all, he will often delay an answer in order to test the resolves of our hearts. Sadly, we often don't really believe that God will answer our prayers. Did you notice the last line of that passage? Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Do we have persistent faith that does not give up until we see the answer to our prayers? 
Do we continue earnestly in prayer for the salvation of souls? That leads us to the second characteristic of the effect of prayer. Continue earnestly in prayer. Persistent prayer on our part proves the reality and the earnestness of our desires. Does it break your heart that loved ones and neighbors are lost and headed to an eternity in hell? Do we sincerely long to see souls come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus? Then we must be persistent in our prayers to that end. As we continue in persistent prayer for the lost, the Lord increases that longing in our souls until that desire consumes us and we will become part of the answer to our prayers. As we continue to pray for the lost, we become more and more conscious of the people around us who are lost and in and need for them to hear the message of forgiveness and salvation in the Lord Jesus. Our persistent prayer actually changes us. The, the Lord desires for the lost to be saved more than we do. But he wants to be, wants us to be part of that solution. The Lord Jesus showed his longing for the lost to be saved in Matthew 23 verses 37 through 39, where he agonized over the city of Jerusalem. That passage reads, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord was grieved at the hard-heartedness of the Jewish leaders and longed to gather the people to himself. He longed to protect them as a mother hen would protect her chicks under her wings, but they were unwilling. The Lord wants to cultivate that same desire in us as we continue in persistent and earnest prayer for the lost. Do we agonize over the plight of those around us who are headed to an eternal existence of suffering? Lord, help us to care as he does. The third characteristic of effective prayer is vigilance. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it. The dictionary definition of the word vigilant means to be watchful, ever awake and alert, to be keenly watchful, to detect detect danger. We are reminded of the Lord's instructions to his disciples in Matthew 26, verses 40 and 41. On the night before the Lord would go to the cross, he and his disciples went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He asked Peter, James, and John to stay and watch with him while he went ahead a little further to pray. In verses 40 and 41, we read, Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? 
Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Because the disciples failed to watch and pray, they were totally unprepared for what lay ahead. Just as the Lord had predicted, they all scattered when he was arrested. The Lord Jesus was all alone as he endured the trial, the scourging, and only John returned to witness the Lord's crucifixion. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. In our inward spirit, we desire to be faithful, but alas, our flesh is weak. We desire to be faithful in prayer for the lost, but we so easily become distracted and neglectful. We desire to always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. But so often, we are not ready. The opportunity to say a word for Christ comes and goes, and we regret that we were unprepared. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. The fourth characteristic of of effective prayer is an overall, overall attitude of thankfulness. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 tells us to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Thanksgiving is an essential part of effective prayer. The Lord is more than willing to abundantly meet our needs and to bless our efforts in the gospel. But one of those traits he wants to see developed in our lives is an attitude of thankfulness. As we seek to share the message of the gospel with others, they need to see that we ourselves are full of gratitude to the Lord for our own salvation and for his daily provision for our lives. That attitude of thankfulness needs to be openly expressed both to the Lord and before others. Why would anyone else want to know our Savior if they can't see the joy of a thankful heart in us? We have looked at the characteristics of effective prayer, continuance, earnestness, vigilance, and thankfulness. Each one of these characteristics is vital to effective prayer for the advancement of the gospel. But now let's look at the subject of effective prayer in the gospel. Verses 3 and 4 give us two items that Paul requests prayer for. Provision of open doors and clarity in proclaiming the gospel. Verse 3 says, Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. Paul asked the Colossians to pray for him and his fellow evangelists 
that God would open to us a door for the word. If the gospel is to go forth in power and be effective, there are many doors that need to be opened. It's not just a matter of persuasive speech, but the Holy Spirit must must work in hearts if there is going to be true conversion. 2 Corinthians Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4 tell us that Satan, the god of this world, has blinded unbelievers so that unless God intervenes, they will never see the truth of the gospel. It reads in that passage, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. In order for the unsaved people to understand the gospel and be saved, the Holy Spirit must first remove the blinders from their eyes. When you talk to someone about the Lord Jesus or give them a gospel tract, be sure to send up a quick prayer that God would open their eyes. The most eloquent presentation of the gospel message will simply fall on deaf ears and clouded minds unless God intervenes. Those who, those believers who are on the front lines sharing the message of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ are desperately in need of our prayers. Missionaries, evangelists, and other Christian workers need the support of our prayers, both individually and corporately as a local assembly of God's people. We must pray that God would move heart, move the hearts of government and institutional leaders to allow Christian workers access to prisons, retirement homes, schools, and other places where people are gathered or confined. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. The Lord is able to direct, direct the decisions of government officials to accomplish his will, and he has promised to answer our prayers to that end. Praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. Paul here, Paul says here that he is in chains, that he is a prisoner for the sake of the gospel. He was not imprisoned for any wrongdoing but he was incarcerated for the crime of sharing the message of Christ. Paul did not see himself as a prisoner of Rome, but considered himself a prisoner of Christ. It was for the sake of Christ and his gospel that he was chained to prison guards 24-7. In several of his prison epistles, Paul refers to himself as a prisoner of Christ. It was not the Roman Empire that kept Paul locked up in prison. The Lord had already demonstrated that he could free Paul and other believers from prison if he so desired. Early in the book of Acts, Herod, 
had James, the brother of John, put to death and had locked up Peter, intending to bring him before the people after the Passover, most likely to execute him as well. We read beginning in Acts 12, 6, And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains, between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. Humanly speaking, there was no way Peter was going to get out of that prison. But the Lord had other plans for Peter at that time. On one occasion, Paul himself, along with Barnabas, had been beaten and thrown into the local jail in Philippi. In Acts 16, beginning in verse 23, we read, And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Even there, they had a witness. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword, and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Paul did not see himself as a prisoner of Rome, but as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. It was for Christ's sake that he was locked up in a Roman prison chained to guards. That Roman prison was where Christ had assigned Paul to minister the gospel. Paul was chained to soldiers that would rotate with other soldiers throughout the day and night. No doubt he took the opportunity to speak to each one about the gospel of Christ. In Philippians 1.12 we read, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest 
that my chains are in Christ. One lesson we can take away from Paul's imprisonment is that whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, whether good and bad, good or bad, enjoyable or unpleasant, we can choose to view those circumstances as God's assignment for us for the moment. I'm sure Paul would have preferred more comfortable accommodations, but this was his assignment from the Lord for the time being. He did not waste the opportunity complaining about his lot, but looked for what the Lord would have him to do there in that prison. Paul's attitude and his action had a positive effect on other believers. He goes on to say in verse 14, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Most of us struggle with boldness. We long to be confident in sharing the gospel, and it helps to see other believe, see that other believers are making a difference. Paul himself struggled with boldness and was counting on the prayers of the Philippians to empower him as he sought to be faithful in the gospel. He goes on to say in verses 19 through 21 of Philippians 1, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We all need the prayers and encouragement of other believers in the work of the gospel. We all need the prayers of other believers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ to provide not only boldness, but also to provide clarity as we share the message. Our passage in Colossians 4, 2-6 goes on to say, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. And then he says, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. One of the difficulties in sharing the gospel is making it clear to those who listen. Sometimes we think we are being clear, but the other person has no clue what we are talking about. One of the problems in communicating the gospel message today is that we have grown accustomed to a certain amount of Christianese. We have a lingo that we are used to using around other Christians, and we assume that the unsaved person knows this language. Words like sanctification, born again, faith, repentance, and others are either unknown or misunderstood by many people today. It's not that we should avoid using these words, but we must be sure to define these terms as we're talking to the unsaved about the gospel. 
Even the word gospel is not readily understood by the average person on the street. At one time in history, the culture of the United States of America was familiar with the Bible and with Christian thinking thinking in general. I'm sad to say that we have a generation that has grown up without an understanding of basic Christian teachings. At one time, those who ran vacation Bible schools and good news clubs could assume that most of the children were at least familiar with simple Bible stories. But that is not the case anymore. When I grew up, many children who are not necessarily from Christian homes went to Sunday school and became familiar with Bible stories. Today, our culture has become very much a pagan society. We can no longer no longer assume that our hearers will have even an elementary understanding of biblical teaching or even an accurate picture of who God is, of Christ, or of the significance of the cross. We pretty much have to assume we will be starting from scratch when talking to unsaved people about the gospel. That's why our brother Brian when contemplating starting a children's ministry in the local public schools, studied and prepared for his teaching using the Firm Foundations curriculum put out by New Tribes Mission. This curriculum starts from the beginning of God's revelation of himself in the book of Genesis and progresses through the Bible before getting to the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ presented in the New Testament. If people don't adequately understand their sin or lost condition, they will not appreciate the remedy God has provided in the cross of Christ. Clarity in proclaiming the gospel is essential to sound conversions. Prayer for clarity in sharing the gospel is also essential. Missionaries which more or less would include every believer, need prayer that they might proclaim the message of the gospel with clarity. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. We have seen the necessity of prayer for open doors and for clarity in proclaiming the gospel, both for ourselves and those who are working on the front lines. But along with this, there is also the necessity of a lifestyle conducive to sharing the gospel. We see in verses 5 and 6 that we must walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. The word wisdom in the Bible is not just about intelligence, but refers to godly understanding and living. It is a mindset that acknowledges God in all of life. Proverbs 9.10 tells us, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, 
and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. A godly reverence for the Lord and knowledge of his ways are necessary for an effective witness to those who are outside the family of faith. Those whom we seem, those whom we seek to win to the Lord must see in us something of the character of Christ. If our lives don't, don't match our words, it will actually turn people off to what we have to say. Walking in wisdom toward those who are outside requires that we stay close to the Lord ourselves and not allow sin to go unchecked in our lives. We must also be sensitive to where they are in their understanding of who God is and be winsome in our interactions. Many people have a misconception of who God is, sometimes through their own self-deception, but often through a bad experience they had with someone who claimed to represent God. It may take time before they are open to the message of the gospel. We might have to gain their trust before they would be willing to listen. We must be careful not to look down on those who are outside the family of faith. A condemning attitude toward the lost will actually drive them away. Although we must never soft-pedal the gospel or water down what God's word has to say about sin and judgment, but we must be sure to communicate that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The good news of the gospel is that Christ came and gave his life to save sinners. As we read, read in Ezekiel 33.11, As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Condemnation is only for those who refuse his amazing offer of forgiveness of sin and eternal life. John 3.19 reminds us, and this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Humility regarding our own failings is also essential. A holier-than-thou attitude has no life, no place in the life of a Christian. First Timothy 1.15, one of my favorite verses says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. This was Paul's attitude and should be ours as well. Each one of us should view ourselves as the chief of sinners whom Christ came into the world to save. We are all beggars telling other beggars where we can get a meal and a place to sleep. A lifestyle of an effective witness begins with walking in wisdom. And an essential element of walking in wisdom is that we redeem the time. Verse 5 says, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. We are all given a limited amount of time in this life. Are we using it productively? 
We don't need to get stressed out and panicky, panicking. But are we conscious of the limited amount of time we have to serve God and influence others for Christ? We never see the Lord Jesus being in a hurry or being stressed or anxious. In Luke 13, 31 through 33, we read about the Pharisees trying to scare Jesus. It says, on that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. The Lord wasn't rattled about what Herod might do to him. His timing was in the Father's hands. Remember the Lord's interaction with the Samaritan woman as well. He turned a conversation about drinking water from a well into an occasion to lead her to faith in himself. He was so in tune with the Father's will and with the Spirit's leading that he just naturally connected with people. I would love to be like that. We must not allow ourselves to become anxious or in a hurry, but we need to be conscious of our limited amount of time to reach people with the gospel. The old saying is certainly true. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When we stand before the Lord one day, will we be satisfied with how we spent the time that was allotted to us in this life? Are we redeeming the time? We all get those opportunities to influence others for Christ, but those opportunities will pass. To redeem means to buy back. Are we buying back the time that we would normally waste on frivolous activities? I can't tell you what that would look like for you. Of course, we need time for rest and rejuvenating, and there is nothing wrong with recreation. But this idea of redeeming time is something we need to prayerfully consider. Verse 6 goes on to say, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. It was said of the Lord Jesus that he was full of grace and truth. The Lord Jesus would give people the truth, but he would do it in a gracious way. Are we gracious when we speak to others of Christ? Or do we hammer them with Bible verses and try to make them feel uncomfortable? How different that is from our Lord. Remember his invitation in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. People need to know that we genuinely care for them. 
Remember how the Lord Jesus responded to Judas, who was about to betray him. At the Last Supper in the upper room, the night of his betrayal, the Lord offered the bread dipped in the sop to Judas. This was a gesture that was typically given to the guest of honor. And when Judas needed to leave the supper early and make arrangements to betray him, the Lord Jesus simply said to him, What you do, do quickly. The Lord was so gracious to Judas that when Judas realized that Jesus was condemned, he was so filled with remorse that he went and hanged himself. How much better would have been if he repented and returned to the Lord, but you could still see his remorse. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Let your speech be seasoned with salt. Salt adds flavor to our food, and it also preserves food from decay. Fishermen would rub salt into the fish they had caught to keep them fresh longer. Is our speech always gracious, seasoned with salt? Do people enjoy their conversation with us, or do they dread to be around us? Are our conversations with others free of coarse language and hurtful speech? Ephesians 4.29 tells us to let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Everything we say ought to build others up. Our language, whether speaking with believers or unbelievers, must always be above reproach. Unbelievers may speak in a coarse manner and use hurtful language, but they are shocked and disappointed when they hear us talk that way. So let's continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant with thanksgiving. Let us pray for full-time Christian workers and for ourselves that we would be effective in sharing the gospel. Let us pray for open doors for the gospel and that we would be clear in our presentation. Let us be sure to walk in wisdom as we interact with the unsaved. And let us redeem the time and not waste opportunities. And let us be gracious toward those who are lost keeping our speech free from coarseness and hurtful speech. And may the Lord Jesus be glorified in all that we do and say. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your your word here. We thank you for these brief instructions and pray that you would uh, impart them to our hearts. Help us to keep them in mind as we uh, rub shoulders each day with those around us who are lost and on their way to eternity without you. Uh, we pray that you'd help us to be winsome in our, our speech and that we would have a genuine concern for the lost around us. We acknowledge our dependence once again on you and ask that you work on our behalf to your glory. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.